This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. So a couple of weeks ago, you provided in our, in our threaded talk um, your stories and reflections and questions on this um, first of the eight realizations of great beings. And so I just wanted to go back and give a little bit more um, grounding, a little bit more of Dharma scaffolding. Um, and, you know, so, so I'm, I'm um, trying to not repeat, um, but, you know, there, there, there is, I, I've, I've been reflecting on this and, you know, in one sense, we are, of course, covering the same ground over and over again, sometimes slightly different angles, but of course, you know, the teachings are generally the same. And um, when, when you, uh, because I've been attending, you know, some Zoom teachings with, with other teachers, you know, after a while you realize, um, you know, we really are all saying the same thing. Uh, slightly different schools, slightly different lineages, slightly different perspectives, uh, sometimes slightly different emphasis or very different emphasis. But um, of course, the, the heart of what we're speaking of is the same. And hopefully that, that the, the repetition only helps uh, or mostly helps um, in, in, the, in the learning. I remember reading a book years ago on learning and he said there were eight stages of learning and I did not review it before this talk. So I'm not going to remember the first three were something like, you know, reading, memorization, Repetition, 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 repetition. And uh, one of you brought that up on, during the class on Saturday, <clears throat> um, you know, saying that you um, appreciated hearing things um, again. And I, you know, I didn't know if that was your polite way of saying, are you repeating yourself? Um, but I am repeating myself. And, you know, if you think of, what happens, you know, in the moment where a phrase, a word shakes us awake, right? The thing that we've heard over and over and over again, and all of a sudden you hear it, you actually really hear it and something shifts. So there's that too. And I was reading an interview this morning with Bhikkhu Bodhi who um, recently wrote a, a paper to defend the world and the word enlightenment. Because I didn't know this, but it seems that there's actually a concerted effort by teachers and by scholars to translate Bodhi instead as awakening. Right? And I use awakening quite a bit, in fact, though I wasn't doing it on purpose. 
And he said, you know, perhaps it's because it's more accessible and it doesn't bring up an association with reason, with a European enlightenment. But Bhikkhu Bodhi was arguing that um, nowhere in the sutras does the Buddha allude to the image of waking up. Um, that so many times he uses similes and he never says, you know, I awakened to the truth of things just as someone wakes up from sleep. That instead, what he said was that he, his ignorance was dispelled like a light dispels the darkness. And, you know, in our own lives and in our own practice, I think, you know, calling it awakening versus enlightenment may not make that much of a difference. Because, you know, sometimes we're just trying to get to the cushion, right? We're just trying to be present in a moment and, you know, not be so angry or not be distracted, not be so impatient. But at the same time, you know, we can't ignore the power of, of words to shape our thoughts, to shape our views, and therefore our actions. A couple of years ago, I was reading one of Elaine Pagel's books um, called Beyond Belief. And, you know, she was very clearly outlining how the shift from portraying Jesus as a prophet, as a wisdom teacher, human prophet, to describing him as the son of God was uh, a concerted effort, a deliberate effort, which of course had a profound, profound effect on the largest religion in the world. And so words matter in what we do with them. And so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm not suggesting we split hairs, but you know, only that we, that we listen and investigate and apply. And especially, you know, when we hear these teachings to, to, to continually ask ourselves, what am I hearing? How am I hearing? And how do I apply this? Right, I've said this many times. So I was thinking, you know, really applied Buddhism, which as far as I'm concerned is the only Buddhism worth talking about. In, in my view, a spiritual tradition or a religious tradition in order to be effective, in order to be skillful, should show us how to live, how to better live as human beings. And ultimately, the most skillful teaching is the one that you actually remember, right? The one that you can actually do. And so this, this sutra I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it was translated into Chinese by a Parthian monk. And, and Parthia was what is, would be now Iraq. His name was An Shikao. And so this was second, second century of our common era. So some 700 years after the Buddha's death. And it was actually the result of, of several sutras put together. And I don't know the, the sources of these. And some years ago, I gave a series of talks on a very similar teaching, the eight awarenesses of enlightened beings, but, but the actual awarenesses or realizations, some of them are a little different. 
And that translation and commentary came to us from, from Dogen. And I spoke about how there's, there's two. So the, they're said to be the Buddha's last teaching. And that's why in, in the literature, they're considered so important. But there's actually two versions of, of the Buddha's last days. One is from the Pali Canon and one from the Mahayana literature. And the, in the Theravada version, that, that great discourse on the final nirvana is the longest sutra in the entire Pali Canon. And the, the Nirvana Sutra, the Mahayana version, is also quite long. And it essentially contains a review of all the Buddhist teachings, right? Like the best of, which of course he didn't compile himself. Somebody else did, and probably more than one somebody after his death. And I think it's just, you know, helpful to keep that in mind, you know, that, that these were composites that were put together by a number of people with different views and often different agendas. Because, you know, sometimes we find these teachings and we wonder why, why aren't they consistent or why, why do they seem inconsistent with even like the, the views of the tradition itself? Like if the Buddha was so enlightened, why did he say to his mother, you cannot become ordained, you cannot become a nun? And all women by extension. Well, maybe he said that, maybe he said that, and maybe somebody else did. But again, you know, ultimately for me, I ask myself, what is this saying to me, right? So, so it's, um, it does require a bit more work, right? We have to step forward and meet the Dharma where it lives. So it's a bit more work, you know, that the, the, the quotable sayings we get in our inbox, in our feeds. Because the Dharma is everywhere. But in order for it to actually really work, we have to go beyond the surface of things, right? I, I really, I very much doubt we'll ever read a koan that says that someone realized themselves by reading a quote on Facebook or Goodreads, or, or the New York Times. I, maybe the New York Times, I don't know. And I mentioned this only because, you know, the Dharma is everywhere now. And it is in our inbox. And it is on uh, social media feeds. And that's great. I mean, better than it, than it not being. But then what happens to it in the process? And I think it's part of what, what Bhikkhu Bodhi is fighting for. And he's always fought for this, you know, to, to preserve the integrity of the, the original teachings of Buddhism. And whether you agree or disagree with him, I, I really feel that his um, love for the Dharma, is how I understand it, is, is really... Um, admirable and, and, and worth supporting. And so, you know, towards the end of his life, the Buddha gets sick and he recovers. And then Ananda, he begs him to give a final teaching. 
And, and it's really nice. And the sutra, he's, he sounds kind of cranky, the Buddha. He says, you know, what else do the monks want from me? I'm paraphrasing slightly, but not very much. I've offered them everything I know. Now I'm old and I'm frail and I'm tired, like an old cart that's held together with supports. And when I read this, I thought of Daito Roshi, because he did something very similar as he was dying. The last talk that he gave was on a koan called Guishan's I've Already Exhausted Myself for You. Isn't that interesting? What else can I say to you? I've already said it all. And now it's your turn. That's essentially what the Buddha says, because then he says to Ananda in that very famous line, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge. And he's basically saying, it's not about me, the Buddha. It's not even about the Dharma per se, in the sense of it being Buddhist. It's about truth. It's about reality. So go and practice it. And then the sutra continues actually for quite a long time. And there's a whole other set of teachings. They're going to this or that village, they're meeting this or that Brahman, you know, so, so the teachings continue. But then he gets sick again. And he decides because nobody, he, he gives Ananda the chance to ask him to stay. And Ananda, I don't know, he kind of, I don't know what happens. He gets distracted or he gets shy. I don't know. He, he doesn't. He doesn't ask the Buddha to stay. And three times the Buddha insinuates, you could ask me to stay. You know, I actually have the power to do this. And Ananda just misses the boat. And so the Buddha finally says, well, this is it. Then I'm just going to die. And he actually tells Ananda in, in, in the version of the sutra, he actually says, you missed it. You missed your chance because when Ananda finally realizes the Buddha is really dying, then he begs him to stay. And the Buddha says, it's too late. You had three chances and you missed them. And right before he dies, he offers them the 37 factors of enlightenment, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four psychic powers, the five faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the noble eightfold path. And then he looks around and he looks at the other monks and he looks at Ananda and he says, does anybody have any questions? And no one says anything. I know how he feels. <laughs> and then he says, well, if you're shy, that's okay. Tell one of your friends, tell one of the other monks and they can ask it for you. And still no one answers. And he asks three times as he usually does. And no one answers, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. Here's the Buddha, here's their teacher, the world honored one, the fully enlightened one. He's about to die and nobody can think of a single question to ask him. Maybe they don't wanna look ignorant. You know, maybe they are shy as many of us are in groups, and everyone else seems so eloquent, you know, so thoughtful, so, so with it. I mean, I remember taking a class in college on Chaucer, and I have no idea what prompted me to do that. Maybe, you know, maybe it was a requirement. 
But I'd go to class and I would look around and everyone is nodding and smiling and, you know, giving these really thoughtful comments as we're reading a passage out loud. And I think, I'm thinking, I have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, this is English. I'm reasonably intelligent. I have no idea what is being said here. Like listening to a koan talk, right? It's like it's a different language. Because it is. It actually is. And so it takes time. It takes time to learn it. And so you have to be patient and you have to be exposed to it, you know, over and over again until slowly you begin to, to understand, oh, this is what they mean when they say X. So maybe the monks, you know, did feel, or maybe they were just overwhelmed. It's like, what do you ask the Buddha right before he dies? You know, how do you make it count? And really, you know, my answer would be, it's just like by being yourself, right? By asking the question that's on your mind. I've shared the story before that, you know, I went through a long period at the, the beginning of my practice where I, I didn't ask very many questions. And I would go to face-to-face -face teaching and I just, I don't remember what would happen because if I wasn't asking questions, I'm not sure what was happening. And finally, Dido turns to me one day and he's like, Vanessa, this is like a tennis game. I don't have anything to hit if you don't throw the ball at me. So just ask. And really, I think what, what finally got me going is I thought, I don't want to regret I, I, for me, it definitely was like, I didn't want to look like I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't want to look ignorant. And then I thought, but this is your chance. Here is this Buddha sitting in front of you. So I'm just going to ask, I'm just going to trust. But nobody says anything. And so the Buddha concludes that they've all understood his teaching perfectly. And then he says, behold, now friends, all compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness. And that's his last teaching. All created things will pass. And so practice hard, impermanence. Someone asked Suzuki Roshi once, you know, I've been listening to your lectures for years and I just, I just don't understand them. Can you just, can you just, you know, condense them, reduce them to a, just a single sentence? And everyone laughs and Suzuki laughs and he says, everything changes. Next question. In the Nirvana Sutra, the setting is much more elaborate as it is, as is true of, of many of the sutras. And I've asked this question, I don't know if I've asked it of this group before, but I have asked it before. You know, what do you feel? What is it like? What does it mean to you when you hear or when you read you know, some of these sutras? And there are these really, kind of magical universes 
right? There's millions upon millions of Buddhas spread out through thousands upon thousands of lands. And they're all in crystal palaces, sitting in mile high thrones. And they're all emanating light from their forehead. And they all smell really nice. And when they speak, their voices are like music. And sometimes it goes on for pages. Why? What's the point? Because again, you know, in the early years of Buddhism, the Buddha was a man, perfectly enlightened, but a man. And then Mahayana comes along and he becomes more than human. It seems we really, we can't help ourselves. We love our miracles. We love divinity. Why? And I think of it this way, you know, in, in the Pali Canon, you do, it's, it's so methodical. You have these somewhat dry lists of qualities, requisites, characteristics. Do this, be this, practice this, renounce this, analyze, note, let go. In the Mahayana universe, that, that, that method and that linearity, it just gets exploded completely. And so I ask myself, how does this help me to live a more fulfilling life? In the 90s, Shambhala published a book called Letters to Vanessa. I was at the monastery at the time, and I inhaled it, actually. It's by Jeremy Hayward, a scientist, and at least at the time, a Shambhala practitioner. And he wrote a series of letters to his daughter, Vanessa, to counter the effects of what he called the dead world, the world of reason and matter, of facts and figures. And he was arguing that there was another world, a world that's alive and bursting with energy and with awareness. And so interesting that now neuroscientists are arguing, many of them, for a consciousness that is um, beyond what we recognize, right, as human consciousness. I mean, more and more we're finding that animals have more consciousness, more awareness that we have given them credit for. But they're arguing for the consciousness of plants and things even. But back then, you know, Hayward was, I, I believe he's a, a physicist, and um, he was talking about the, the world in all religious traditions that's, that's um, inhabited by fairies, angels, and demons, divas, Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas. A world in which every grain of sand, every speck of dust contains the whole universe. So there's no such thing as dead matter there. And this is what these sutras say to me. There's nothing in this world that doesn't deserve my attention or my care because it's sacred. There's nothing in this world that is not important. You know, the, the tea in my cup, the, the rose petals that somebody harvested and dried and packed so carefully so that I could have this sip of heaven 
the cup that my friend Phil made before his stroke, and which he gave me as a, as a wedding gift. The computer with which I wrote this talk and with which I'm able to be with you now. I would rather live in a sacred world. Or, or as Hayward calls it, an enchanted world. Which doesn't exclude paying the bills, doesn't negate how difficult it is some days just to put one foot in front of the other. It doesn't pinkwash, you know, our very real feelings of overwhelm or despair, of listless, listlessness, languishing, the New York Times called it. But it is saying, you know, there's more. Or it's saying, because of those feelings, turn to this enchanted world. And so in, this, in the sutra, all of these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, millions of them, have gathered together because the, the Buddha is about to die. And it says they're unlimited in mind and could act as they willed. They saw through all illusions and their sense organs were subdued. Like great Naga rulers, they were perfect in great virtue. They were accomplished in wisdom of emptiness and perfect in their own attainments. They were like the sandalwood forest with sandalwood all around, or like a lion king surrounded by lions. They were the true sons and daughters of the Buddha. Early in the morning, when the sun had just risen, they were up from their beds in the places where they lived and were about to use their toothbrushes. It really says this. When they encountered the light that arose from the Buddha's person and they said to one another, hurry up bathing and gargling and be clean. I mean, this is the sutra describing the last moments of the Buddha. And here they are, these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas bathing and gargling, brushing their teeth. I love that. <laughs> I mean, a person wrote this. And then it says, you know, and their hair stood and they, they were all red because they're upset that the Buddha is about to die. And tears filled their eyes, which expressed their great sadness. And they fall at the Buddha's feet and they touch them with their hands and they walk around him a hundred thousand times, folded their hands, paid homage, stepped back, and then sat on one side. So in this version of the sutra, the, 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 the sadness and the grief is in, in full display. And the Pali Canon is it's, it's, it's very, it's very subdued. It kind of reminds me of, you know, Protestant versus Catholic. You know, we, we love it. We Catholics love it like bloody and sweaty and just dramatic. No holds barred. But, you know, if you think about it, I mean, it, it, there, there's a touch of, in all of this magic or metaphysics, however you want to call it, there's something that is very, that is actually very real to me, very human. Hurry up with your toiletries because the Buddha's about to die. And it reminded me, you know, when my brother died, by that point I had been practicing for a number of years. And so I could really watch my mind as I was 
you know, moving through the grieving process. And I noticed how, how changeable the mind is, how impermanent my thoughts and my feelings. I mean, one moment I was curled up with grief. The next moment I was thinking about potato chips, really like that. And I realized the mind can hold it all. And it does. It does if we let it. And so here the, the assembly is upset and the Buddha calms them down and he gives them the eight realizations of great beings. The world is impermanent. That's how they begin. And because we talked about it, I don't want to beat it into the ground. But let me quote a phrase that I've used, I've used before. Just as matter cannot move at the speed of light, the self cannot move at the speed of impermanence. Right, so Einstein said that, that an object, even a, a small object will require um, a small amount of matter, in this case will require enormous amounts of energy to move. And as the object moves faster, its energy increases. And the faster it goes, the more its mass increases because energy and mass are equivalent. And so it just keeps growing, the mass keeps growing until it becomes infinite. And the self too is like this. The more energy we give it, the heavier it becomes. And please really just take that in for a moment. The more energy we give the self, the weightier, weightier it becomes. When we talk to ourselves, when we compare, when we judge, when we put ourselves up, bring ourselves down, when we center the I and make it solid. I will, I can't, I should, I want. The harder it is to move at the speed of impermanence. So things are changing, they're happening constantly, but we can't change with them. The self is a necessary but heavy burden. The other day I read an interview with Michelle Williams, you know, the actor, and she had this most amazing line. She said, I want to be like water. I want to slip through fingers but hold up a ship. How amazing. I think this perfectly describes someone who wants to be free, right? I want to flow and trickle and rush in a turrent. That's what's needed. Not fixed, not static, because that's not the way of things. But I want to be strong too, mighty even, with the ability to hold up a ship. I mean, why limit yourself? Let me hold up an island, a continent or two. And that is the strength and fluidity of being able to move with impermanence. This is a, a poem by my favorite poet, Wisława Szymborska. It's called View with a Grain of Sand. 
We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name, whether general, particular, permanent, passing, incorrect, or apt. Our glance, our touch mean nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched. And that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. For it, it is no different from falling on anything else, with no assurance that it has finished falling or that it is falling still. The window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. Its water feels itself neither wet nor dry, and its waves to themselves are neither singular nor, nor pl plural. They splash deaf to their own noise on pebbles neither large nor small. In all this beneath a sky by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all, and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. The wind ruffles it, its only reason being that it blows. A second passes, a second second, a third, but there are three seconds only for us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news, but that is just our simile. The character is invented, his haste is make-believe, his news inhuman. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.